of our study, the book of 1 Timothy, and we're going to be looking at chapter 3. Chapter 3 deals with the qualifications for elders and deacons. Now, you may be asking yourself at this very moment, with all that's going on in the world and the seriousness and all the things that are taking place and the difficult issues that we are, are facing and uh, frightening times and concerning times, why would you be talking about that? Isn't there some other things, other issues you ought to be discussing? Well, I think that it is exactly during times like these that you need to understand the wisdom, the gifts, the willingness of those who are in leadership here at this church. I think this is the perfect time to discuss the character and the expectations that God has that he spells out quite clearly in his word those character traits, the responsibilities that the men who are elders, who are deacons here in our church, uh, what are some of those qualifications, those character, so that you can rest securely that the men that God has called and placed in authority here by the will of the people in this congregation, uh, they know what they're talking about. They understand how difficult these days are. They understand how trying these times are. And I guarantee you, the men who are the elders and deacons of this church, they understand praying for wisdom, asking God for wisdom, who promises to give wisdom liberally to all who, who ask. The men, the elders of this church, the deacons of this church, they understand the enormous responsibility that they have in leading this church and being overseers of this church. Uh, this morning, uh, we have several of our elders uh, here. Should have all of them, right? But I think some of them are upstairs counting money. Uh, but just so you know who your elders and deacons are, uh, Bill Billings is an elder. Bill, you stand up. You need to know who your elders are. Bill, you stand up. N Neil, Neil Snoth, who just walks in, who leads the singing, he uh, is is an elder. Uh, I I'm an elder. Howard up just went upstairs. Uh, is an elder. Uh, Chronister was ordained an elder uh, years, years ago in another church, but he has those qualifications. Uh, so those are, your, are your, your elders who serve and uh, serve as overseers to this church. The deacons that we have, Tim Doty is the deacon, and Josh back there is, uh, is the deacon. Uh, Howard Lancaster is a deacon, but oh, here, Howard is there. Howard is a, uh, is a, is a deacon. Rick Watana Peruta is a deacon, and uh, he and his little family are out today. Uh, so, did I miss somebody? Do what? Oh, and Mike Markham, he's an elder. Mike's upstairs uh, counting, counting money. See, out of sight, out of mind. And Dale is upstairs counting money. So he's also a deacon. So these are the men that God has called to serve in that capacity. And I just wanted you to be familiar with them. And it's during these trying times that uh, I, I can count on these men to have wisdom, insight, clarity of thought, and provide the leadership that I think this church needs in the future. When there are certain things that come against us, when there are things that, that might happen in the very near future, uh, I guarantee you, your elders, your deacon, and, and the other men and women of this church, they are praying. This is a praying church. This is a church that studies the Word of God, and I appreciate that so very much. I appreciate these, these men and their steadfastness, uh, their decision-making ability. Uh, I, I appreciate uh, how they are willing to be used of God 
during these very troubling times. So it's because of these troubling times that I want to talk about the qualifications and what you can expect from these men uh, as, as we go forward. So turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Now we're going to be going back and forth between 1 Timothy and Titus quite a bit. The point that we're going to start with is in verse 15 of chapter 3. Is this is the key. This is the summary of everything we're going to be looking at here in 1 Timothy 3. Paul tells young Timothy, But if I tarry long that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thy ha- thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. So what Paul is telling Timothy, I've told you all these things so you know how to conduct yourself, how the church is to be operated, how the, and this has much more to do than telling kids not to go running in the aisles or bringing drinks into the auditorium and all those type of things. It has much more to do with that. It has to do with the structure, the organization, how you should conduct the activity and the worship service and the leadership here at St. Louis Bible Fellowship or at the church that Timothy was pastoring in Ephesus. So that's what we're going to be looking at, so you know how to behave yourself. And don't we want to know how to behave ourselves and conduct ourselves here at this church? As we step out on faith, as we trust God, as we look to Him to direct our lives? Absolutely. Chapter 3, starting with verse 1. This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop... He desires a good work. Now, there are several things you need to know about that word bishop. It's episkopos. It has to do with overseer. That's what the word means, is an overseer. If a man desires the position of an overseer, uh, leave it to churches today to kind of get all that truth misconstrued and misused and mislabeled uh, today, But the idea of a bishop is the same as an elder, and it is a position open to several in the same congregation. The word bishop simply means overseer. Now, it carries with it, with that term, an enormous sense of responsibility. It is interchangeable with the word elder. Here, let me show you that. Look at Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. Start with verse 7. Well, look at verse 17. And from Miletus, this talking about Paul. Well, let's start with verse 16, Tim. For Paul had determined to sail by Ephesus because he would not spend the time in Asia. For he hastened, if there were possible for him, to be at Jerusalem the day of Pentecost. And from Lydus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. And when they were come to him, he said unto them, You know from the first day that I came into Asia, after what manner I have been with you all, at all seasons. So here in this verse he calls them elders. Look at verse 28. You overseer, episcopos. It's the same word as bishop. Take heed. Who's he talking to here? He's talking to the elders. Take heed, therefore, and to all the church which be, which the Holy Spirit hath given you made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. So elders and episcopos, they are the exact same, same role. Look at Titus. As a matter of fact, you might want to just keep your finger uh, stuck there in Titus chapter 1. 
in Titus chapter 1, verse 5, For this cause left I, talking to Titus, For this cause left I thee in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city as I have appointed thee. So basically the same thing that he's told Timothy to do in Ephesus, to the church in Ephesus, he's telling Titus to do in the church there in Crete. So a grave responsibility, a serious responsibility. Matter of fact, every church, in order for it to function properly and have the accountability and have the, 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 the leadership, it needs these overseers, these elders, they play a primary role, if not the lead role, in every one of these churches. And so the word bishop and elder, think of them as overseer. Now, they approach that with humbleness, with meekness, with mildness. And part of the qualifications is not going, hey, look, look at me, look what I am. Hey, I tell you, if a guy has that attitude, then he just is well, he's no longer qualified or he's not qualified to be an elder or to be a deacon if he has that type of, of attitude. And the position of elder uh, or elder is a position. We need to remember that. Elder is or bishop is a position and the pastor and the teacher or an evangelist, those are roles that the elders have within the church. So you have a position. This man is an ordained elder. He has the gift. He has the, the role. He has the job of being the pastor or being a teacher. But there are certain qualifications that each one of these men must have. And that's what we're going to look at this morning so that you know. So you can kind of keep an eye on your elders. That's one of the reasons I wanted them to stand up. So you can keep an eye on them, and you can make sure, hold them accountable. Just as their role is to hold the congregation accountable, your job is to hold them accountable. There's an accountability that goes both ways, let me tell you. And we need that, don't we? We need that. I need that. I, I praise God for these elders that we have, because guess what they, guess what they do? They they hold me accountable, or at least they make me think they hold me accountable, and I can tell you they do. They, they, these guys are, I, I can't think of a church, another church I'd rather pastor. I cannot think of another group of guys that I would rather work with or, or call my brothers in Christ and working in a, any local church. Now, I, I've talked to other pastors, and they'll go, no, you don't know what you're talking about. You ought to see my elders. Oh, no, 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 you ought to see my elders. Well, I'm, I'm glad they feel that way, but they need to see my elders that they, we have here because these are men who love God, love His Word, and, and I appreciate that. And, and we're just, uh, we, we think so much alike, and I don't, I don't think that, that's not the reason I like them because we think so much alike, but they all love God's Word. And that's what governs their thinking is the Word of God. And that's what I embrace, and that's what, what I appreciate so much. So, if any man desire the office of an overseer, a bishop, he desires a good work. And folks, let me tell you, it is work. Make, uh, have no doubt about it. It is work to do it and do it right. He desires a good thing. The church needs that. The body of Christ needs that. It's an office that is desperately needed. A bishop then must be blameless. Now, fortunately, we know from God's Word that Christ is going to present us all blameless before the throne of God. Aren't you excited about that? knowing that your sin has been removed as far as the east is from the west, that though your sin be as scarlet, it should be white as snow. And Ephesians 5 tells us that he is going to present the church, his body, spotless, blameless. And I praise God, that's my standing in Christ. I am saved. The gift of God is eternal life. I am saved for all eternity. And I praise Him for that. He's the one to be praised 
for that. So what is this? That's the position we have is to be blameless. And the word blameless there means not bringing shame upon the congregation, but more importantly, upon the name of Christ. Not bringing shame. Having a testimony, a lifestyle, conducting their lives in such a way that glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ, and everybody knows it. Everyone knows it. So when it says here, uh, a bishop then must be blameless, that frivolous accusations cannot be brought against that person. Uh, 1 Timothy 6.14 uses the word unrebukable. I like that word. Then the world's still going to rebuke you. The world's still going to hate you, right? That, that's just going to happen. But what we have to be, uh, we have to understand, 1 Timothy 6.14, Thou that keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's sort of what that word blameness is, is unre- unrebukable. Drop down to verse 7, kind of goes into a little more detail. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without. That without, not part of the body of Christ, those that are in the world. I think that is important. Now, as we said a while ago, the world's going to hate you. There are going to be accusations brought against you, and I think we're starting to see that more and more and more. But what we have here is you, you need men that, that the outside world has a very difficult time. They have to lie. They have to bring false charges against a person, but so they have a good report of them which are without, outside the body of Christ. They cannot find anything to pin against you and say, well, yeah, you think he's a Christian? Well, this elder, why? Let me tell you what he does. That's um, what that's talking about here. It's important that, a, that an overseer, a bishop then, must be blameless, the husband of one wife. Okay, here we go. That's always interesting when you bring that up. Must be the husband of one wife. And I believe that's talking about one at a time based on the culture and what they were facing there in Ephesus. Remember, this was in Ephesus. Remember last week we talked about Ephesus and the temple of Diana or Aphrodite, and all that went on there, and the temple prostitutes, and, 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 and just how sinful that the Ephesus was during that time. Well, it was the culture for the men to have more than one wife. They would have multiple wives, and that's not how God intended it to be. That was not God's intent. That was not God's plan. Polygamy was uh, rampant at that time. And so what Paul is saying here is that not uh, that he must be uh, the husband of one wife. In order to ministry effectively, the Holy Spirit moved on Paul to tell Timothy this. This is one of the qualifications. And if I were to find out that one of our elders has more than one wife, hey, you're out of here, buddy. Right? But we don't have anybody that has that problem. But what's the question that always comes up? Well, what about divorce? What about divorce? I'm going to be preaching a sermon in the fall. I'm working on marriage, divorce, remarriage, working, working toward that. But let me give you a little snippet here this morning, what, what that's going to be part of. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. If any man be in Christ, he is what? A new creation. Old things become new. Right? If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. All things, all things become new. Uh, 
That's God's plan and purpose. If the guy was not a believer and he comes to know the Lord Jesus Christ, if he's had obtained wives in the past, all things become new. He becomes a new creation in Christ. It's like the slate is just wiped clean. And he can serve as an elder. He can serve as a deacon. That makes it pretty simple. But then somebody raises their hand and go, well, what about somebody who was divorced uh, after they became, became a Christian? Uh, Christians, unfortunately, do get divorced. It's not God's intent. It's not what God wants. See, I'm of the opinion that God can he can repair, He can fix, he can, he can repair any marriage as long as both the husband and wife are willing uh, to make it work. As long as they're willing to commit it to God and saying, Lord, we want you to be glorified. We don't want, the husband doesn't say, no, I want my way. The wife doesn't say, no, I want my way. But they both come to the conclusion they want God's way to be done. God can fix any marriage. He can heal any relationship, I guarantee you. But there are times when that relationship can't be healed. That relationship can't be fixed. There are times when there are abusive relationships, and I'm just going to tell you flat out, the individual needs to get out. They need to get out. Now, Christ, and we're not going to go into all of this, but Christ talking to the Pharisees, was very much aware of the Pharisees and their attitude was because Moses, I think it was in Genesis, uh, no, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 24. I think it was Deuteronomy 24 or 28 where Moses had given the guidelines for divorce and he basically left it open anything if the woman displeased him. Now, and he, he was talking about for serious things that the wife was doing that they could get a divorce and the husband could divorce the wife. In the day of Christ, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they were using that to trap the Lord Jesus, first of all. Second, what they were doing, what the culture was, is basically just wife swapping or being married for a certain period of time and going... She no longer appeals to me. She no longer, I don't want her anymore. And so she didn't fix my turkey sandwich the way I wanted it. So, babe, you're out of here. And bring on. And they were literally, actually, uh, going out and finding new wives and just divorcing that one. Well, the law of Moses said that was the way we could do it. And Christ is telling them, no, 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 that's not the way they were doing it. The other point of that, the other point of that is when Christ tells them that if you, you go out and marry somebody else, then you're, you're committing adultery. And if she goes and marries somebody, she's committing adultery. Because that's basically what they were doing. They were, they were divorcing this because of their heart. They were divorcing one, just setting her aside just so they could get somebody else to be married, uh, married somebody else had had absolutely nothing to do with qualifications for fornication uh, and, and legitimate grounds. Had nothing to do with that. It had everything to do with their hearts were so hardened and it's just what they desired to do. What had happened is a guy by the name of John the Baptist had pointed out to Herod that what he was doing with his brother Philip's wife Herodias was a big no-no. You're not supposed to be doing that. John the Baptist had stood up and told Herod, you cannot put away your wife. You cannot marry your brother's wife just because you think you're king and you should do it. He pointed out that fault and how terrible it was. And so what did happen to John the Baptist? He was beheaded because Herodias asked uh, his, her, her, her daughter danced in front of uh, Herod 
And Herod just went, wow, whatever you want, I'll give to you. And so the wife said, hey, ask for John the Baptist's head. See, so these Pharisees, these Sadducees, these religious leaders, they're thinking, how do we get rid of Christ? It worked to get rid of John the Baptist. If we can put him in the same uh, view, if we can do the same thing for him, we've just got him, we just got rid of him. So that's what's going on there at this point. I think there are grounds for divorce, but I think there are more grounds for God putting back marriages making them work. It's not God's intent for a man and a woman to enter into holy matrimony. And by the way, that's the only kind of matrimony we believe here at St. Louis Bible Fellowship is holy matrimony. So when it talks about being the husband of one wife, uh, I I think it really means one at a time who have been divorced, and we're going to be talking a little bit more about that in the near future. Uh, those that have been divorced, they have been forgiven. Their lives have been, they are, they are right with Christ. They have, uh, the sin was in the divorce. Uh, they have been made, uh, they've been forgiven. And the thing that's always thrown me, the thing that's always confused me, is you can commit murder. And all of a sudden, while you are forgiven, you can do anything and everything. You can be a thief. And people just rejoice and they get all excited. But when you tell somebody you're divorced, ooh, God's going to discard you. God's sick and God, you, you, God can't use you anymore. That's not true. That's not true. It's remarkable how people think that God can forgive every sin. God can make right Everything that you do, He can make you that new creation. He can bless your life. He can use you unless you've been divorced. And we'll be talking a little bit more about that because that's, that's not true. It's not what God wants. It's not according to His plan. But folks, I'm telling you, in Christ there is forgiveness. There is restoration. Amen. The husband of one wife, vigilant, sober. The word sober there means sound-minded. Sound mind. Of good behavior, given to hospitality. How important that is to be given to hospitality. And I can tell you right now, there's not one of our elders or deacons that... If I were to go to their house right now and say, what's for supper, that I would be invited in. But I think this gift of hospitality goes much further than just being able to go knock on their doors and be expected to be fed something. I think it has to do when people come to church here, when they come to worship here, when they, 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 they greet you, they're friendly. Uh, and some of them have uh, much more of a gift of that than others. I, that's there are some people that are just friendly. But they have that gift. But they're all given to hospitality. They all understand how important it is to be of good behavior and to be hospitable. Apt to teach. Now, all of our elders need to be able to teach and to convince the gainsayers. Gainsayers were those that... that uh, disbelieved the truth. Gainsayers were those that tried to teach a lie. The gainsayers were those that tried to, to get people to believe something that just was not accurate. And elders had need, need to be able to teach. They need to be able to explain the mystery. They need to be able to stand up and say, Thus saith the Lord. And i got to tell you, I am so glad that there's not an elder we have that is not capable of sharing the grace message, sharing God's Word, and doing it uh, in such a manner that really glorifies the Lord Jesus. And, I, and when I'm gone, I can ask men in our church, hey, will you preach for me? And they gladly do that. that I can't tell you what a blessing that is. 
but they're apt to teach. Look at Titus 1. Look at Titus 1.9. Paul tells Titus what the qualifications are for elders. Holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught. He may be found doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers, the opposition. That's a prerequisite for an elder. That he is, knows how to preach the Word of God. And I'm going to tell you something. In a world like today, in the world that we're facing today, your elders, your deacons had better have a handle on the Word of God. They'd better be able to open this book and share the good news Tell someone what they must do in order to be saved, to explain the mystery, to explain what the church is all about and how it's glorifying the Lord Jesus. That is a prerequisite. Sober, of good report, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine. It's not saying that they can't drink wine. It's just saying that they're not controlled by wine. They are not drunkards. It's not controlling their behavior. I've, I, when, in, when the church started saying, oh, you can't drink wine, when that started, must have been during Prohibition. But I got news for you. Church, it's wrong to say you can't drink wine. That's not what God's Word says. And we go according to God's Word. Amen? Matter of fact, if drinking wine is a sin... Every one of us is still lost because we don't have a Savior. If drinking wine is wrong, Christ was not the perfect, spotless Lamb of God. He changed the water into wine. I heard a preacher say, that was grape juice. <laughs> no, 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 no. As a matter of fact, how do we know... The Holy Spirit went out of His way to make sure we understood that it was not grape juice. Now, I'm not, grape juice is good for you. I, I encourage you to drink grape juice. Uh, but when Christ changed the water into wine, very first miracle, it had everything to do with the fact that, that He was Israel's Messiah. And Israel, if you want to know joy, if you want to know gladness, then know me as Savior. Know me as Messiah. I am the one to supply the joy. How does he demonstrate that? He changes the water into wine. You want joy? Look to me. I'll give it to you. Here's the perfect example. You say, well, it was grape juice. No, because the guy that was throwing the marriage feast, he comes up to him and he says, wow, this guy... You're pretty remarkable because you saved the best until last. Most people give the best first, and at the end is when they throw in the bad stuff. You did it right the opposite. Well, folks, grape juice don't go from good to bad or from bad to good. That, that Grape juice is grape juice. That's a, that is an indication that what Christ had changed the water into was wine. Plus, people say, no, 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 an elder can't drink wine. Um, he's getting ready to tell Timothy to take a little wine for stomach's sake. And folks, I want to emphasize the little. Drunkenness absolutely is a sin, but so is obesity. Before you slap that glass of wine out of somebody's hand, you better slap that McDonald's out of their hand. And I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this. But you know what Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived? In Proverbs 31, he said, Give a dying man strong drink and a depressed man wine. That's the word of God. The psalmist talks about the fact that we praise God who gives us wine. It's Psalm 104, verse 15. We praise God who gives us wine that makes glad the heart of man. Wine is a mocker. Strong drink is raging. But it is not a sin to drink wine. It's a sin to get drunk and to abuse it. Amen? 
Boy, I'm glad you agree with me because I enjoy wine. So I'm glad you agree with me. Not given to wine. No striker means not a scrapper, not a fighter, not someone that's always going around to pick, pick a fight. I'm glad of that. I'd hate, I'd hate to get in a fist fight with Bill Billings. I think I could take him, but you just never know. You never know. But not a scrapper. Not greedy of filthy lucre, which is ill-gotten gain. How important it is that a, your elders, your deacons are focused on the truth of God's Word, not procuring ill-gotten gain. God's Word tells us that the love of money is the root of what? All evil. But love, it doesn't say money is. But the love of money, when that becomes your obsession, when that becomes all that you desire, the love of money is life. Not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient. Not a brawler. The word broad, that means not contentious. You know, you have, the, you have the striker as a scrapper. Somebody's always wanting to get in a fight. A brawler is someone who's always out picking fights. See, that, God's Word is very clear. And you have to understand the culture, the time there in Ephesus, why this, th- these guys were heathen. These guys lived in a different time. But God had come into their life and changed their life. What a remarkable salvation they were experienced. And God's Word is making sure they understood not to have this type of of lifestyle. And just as it was back then, it's here today, the same thing. Not covetous, but one that rules well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. Rules well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity, presiding properly. And I believe this has to do with their young children. Because you can't control your kids when they get to a certain age and they leave your household. But I think a father has a responsibility understanding he is the head of the house. And I think when kids, you're grown, kids are unruly and they do things that are not pleasing, that are not right, I think that's a reflection more on that father's leadership than it is that child. Now, I know that's a hard saying, but I think that's exactly what it's talking about here. I know it is. One that rules well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man knows not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Point made. Point made. But I'm going to tell you something. Being a father is not easy. You know what it takes? It takes prayer. It takes courage. It takes determination. It takes compassion. I I think it takes the daddy understanding, especially for his daughter, but even a son, that their first understanding of God has to do with their relationship and their understanding or how they see their father. If they see their father as being just and loving and merciful and gracious, but stern. I think they're going to see God in that same manner. If they understand that their dad will punish them, that discipline is important, not because he likes to beat them, but but because he understands that discipline is important in a child's life. And he's not afraid to do it. Though it is so important that we employ the principles and the teachings from God's Word to how we raise our children. And I think that's why that's listed here as one of the 
That's one of the qualifications. One that rules his own house. Verse 6, not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride he fall into the condemnation of the devil, the accusation of the devil. Um, I think it's important that you don't lay hands on any man too suddenly. I think you need to get to know that guy. You need to understand how he, he lives his life. You need to understand, uh, he needs to understand what the requirements are, what God's expectations are. And you show me a guy that stands for ordination and he's boasted, I mean, he, he's puffed up about that. That guy's not qualified. He's a novice, he's a newbie. He's not ready to take on that position. Show me a guy that says, you know what, I, I, know, what's, I know what it's all about, and I, I'm, I'm not sure, I, I, I'm not sure that, I, I don't know about that. I'll, let me pray about it. Bingo, that's probably the kind of guy that you want that understands the seriousness of it. But not a novice. Lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Because we need to understand that one of Satan's roles is before the throne of God accusing the brethren day and night. We need to understand that. Verse 7, Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Same, same situation. His testimony is important, especially during these, these trying times. Deacons, real quick, pretty much a repeat. Two different offices. The elders are in charge of the spiritual goings-on of the church. Uh, the deacons are in charge of the, of the material uh, workings of the church. Uh, the elders take care of the spiritual issues the, de the deacons, uh, they are servants. They take care of the physical plant and the needs. Likewise, must the deacons be grave. The word grave there means honest, not double-tongued. In other words, not a hypocrite. Not a hypocrite. You don't, you don't say one thing and do another. Not double-tongued. Not given to much wine. There you go, the same, same thing. Not a drunkard. Not someone who abuses it. Not greedy of filthy lucre. Same thing. Holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. Understanding what it is that we believe and really believe it in a pure conscience. Not just saying, yeah, yeah, I can sign that doctrinal statement. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I understand. Well, I just... I, I want that authority. No, they truly understand what it is that our church stands for. The doctrinal statement, when they sign it, they mean it. Because if, if they can't sign it, they shouldn't serve in that position. Holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. That's an important for a deacon. And let those also be first, be proved, be tested. That's the same way of saying they shouldn't be novices. Let those also first be tested. Then let them use the office of a deacon being found blameless. Even so must their wives be grave, not slanderous, sober. Isn't it interesting that for elder it doesn't say anything about the wives of course, I'm blessed with the best. And that's one thing that I would never, ever have to, have to be concerned or worried about. But I just think it's interesting for the deacon, it brings in the wives. Because I, I, I think it, the deacon's role is such a servant's role, and they're going to be called upon to do so much. They need to have wives that are honest 
not slanders, not sober, I mean, are, are sober, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husband of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. For they that have used the office of a deacon will purchase to themselves a good decree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. Folks, I'm telling you, the office of deacon, the office of elder, it takes courage. In today's environment, in today's world, it is a whole lot easier for men to go, I don't want that position because you know what? I'm going to come under a microscope. I'm going to be, uh, things are going to be said. I'm going to be examined. That's true. So it takes men who understand the, that God is calling them to take a stand, to be counted for the Lord Jesus Christ, to be ministers, understanding their role. An elder, you are a minister. Deacon, you are a minister. And the expectations are that you do that. When I, when I say that, that when we leave this house when we leave this church and we go out that door we are going uh, to the mission field we're entering the mission field the ones that really really need to understand their role are the elders and the deacons of this church when they walk out that door it's they don't put on a different face as they worship God as they love God as they testify of God your expectation of those men should be they serve God here, and boy, do they serve God out there. And I praise God that we have such a group of men, and they have wives that are just blessings to us all. But the one main qualification is that they have to know the Lord Jesus Christ. They have to have a personal relationship with Him. But it's not just the elders and the deacons. God calls us all to have a personal relationship with Him. Not a maybe, not a perhaps, not even a boy, I hope so. But we have that assurance that we've done exactly what God's Word says, and it's God's Word that we go by. God's Word says what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. What do you believe about the Lord Jesus Christ? That's critical. We believe that he died for our sins. We believe that he was buried. And we believe he rose again. And when you believe that he did that on your behalf, you're saved. Well, there's got to be some work involved. I've got to do certain things God does the work. He did the work on the cross. And when you believe the Holy Spirit sanctifies you, redeems you, justifies you, it's all the work of God. He does the work so that when we get to heaven, we're not going around patting each other on the back or high-fiving one another. We're before His throne worshiping the One who saves us by His shed blood, through His shed blood, through His finished work, no high fives. If we lift our hands, it's not to do a high five, it's to praise Him. It's to thank Him for what He did on Calvary. So all praise, all worship, all adoration goes to Him. There's not a one of us that can say, God, did you see what I did back there? On earth. Well, I, did you hear that sermon, God, that I preached? God, did you hear, did you watch me witness to that, that rotten sinner? That's not going to get us into heaven. What gets us into heaven is faith. We believe in the complete and finished work of Christ on Calvary's cross. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we come before you now. How thankful we are for that salvation that's in Christ. How thankful we are that you love us. You love us so much, even before we loved you. That you were willing to become sin for us, even though you knew no sin. 
that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. Father, we come acknowledging we have no righteousness. We have no goodness on our own. We come acknowledging that we're lost and undone and incapable of saving ourselves. Father, we're not capable of doing anything that would measure up to your holiness. But how we thank you this morning that through Jesus Christ, your only begotten Son in whom you are well pleased, by faith in Him, you place us into Him. And we enjoy that position all eternity. Made joint heirs with Christ. Father, how we praise you for that great and marvelous salvation. And I pray this morning, if there's anyone here that's never by faith trusted Christ, that this will be the morning they'll settle that all-important issue. That it's not by works of righteousness that we've done, but they'll understand it's by their mercy, by your mercy, that they stand perfect in Christ. And Father, during these difficult times, I lift our elders up before you. I lift our deacons up before you. I lift our deaconesses up before you. Father, I pray for courage for them. I pray that you'll just enhance their knowledge of your word. Father, I pray wisdom for them as they guide us through these very difficult times. Bless their homes. And we thank you for your word. And Father, bless us as we go our separate ways. May we ever be mindful that we're entering the mission field. May we faithfully share the gospel. And we pray these things in that holy and most precious name. Amen. Let's stand and be dismissed this morning. If you don't know Christ and you just want to stick